Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. Today I'm going to be talking about a subject that gets me in trouble almost every time I address it. And it's because it's a subject that people are incredibly passionate about. And that is the subject of entertainment. Now the reason the subject of entertainment uh, incurs such passions in people is actually an indication of how powerful entertainment actually is. People say that it's just entertainment, but the reality is that if you criticize somebody favorite film or favorite TV show, if you suggest that maybe they shouldn't have a certain streaming platform or that they should avoid many forms of secular entertainment, people generally respond with a lot of anger and a lot of pushback. And that's because stories are incredibly powerful. But stories have storytellers. And I think that it's completely apparent to anybody uh, who's sentient in 2023 that the storytellers who are telling stories to our culture have a profoundly different value set than those that Christians hold. And in fact, we have seen over the past several decades the entertainment industry transformed into the propaganda wing of the LGBT movement. And I want to highlight here that this has been very intentional on the part of the screenwriters, the script writers, the actors and the actresses, that they have been utilizing the most powerful storytelling forces on earth to change the values of those who are viewing those stories, often even subconsciously, subliminally. Because when people are watching a movie or they're watching a TV show, they instinctively identify with different characters. They place themselves in the position of the characters that they're watching. And so the kinds of characters that are being put on screen genuinely do matter. The values that those characters showcase genuinely matter. And the left, the sexual left, has understood this for a very long time. And they've understood this far more effectively uh, than Christians have. Christians have tried to take sort of the discernment model when it comes to entertainment, which is you got to pick and choose. You don't watch some films, you do watch others. But I, I think that Christians have often ignored the extent to which entertainment is in often selling us messages that we don't fully recognize. And I'll get into that in just a minute. But I want to point to a recent story here for just a moment that I thought was very revelatory. I wrote a, a column over at thebridgehead.ca on some recent news from the Disney Corporation. Walt Disney, of course, is probably the most famous storyteller in American history. He's a cultural icon. Many of his films have been declared intangible cultural inheritances and things like that. Now, though, the Disney Corporation is overtly committed to pushing the sexual revolution, to mainstreaming uh, the views of the LGBT movement. And when I say overtly, I say that they've admitted this. Uh, one of their executives referred to Disney's not-so-secret gay agenda. They've committed to making sure that 50% of the characters that they show on screen are of some minority, whether that be a sexual minority or otherwise. Um, they have committed to making what they call, quote, canonical transgender characters. And a lot of times people will say, well, they're just doing this to make money. They're just giving people what they want. They're giving the viewers what they want. But in their recent SEC filing, they actually admitted that it was hurting them. They've lost around a billion dollars over their last four films, and yet they still continue to push uh, this woke nonsense, this LGBT ideology, and they're doing that, they admit, in their SEC filing, uh, essentially because they're trying to facilitate social change in addition to making profits, but obviously 
based on their recent output. Uh, it's the social change that's taking precedence over the profit. And so a lot of times people will say, ah, oh, it's just entertainment. If you critique a film, especially a, a Disney film, because Disney films are primarily targeted at children, well, people will say, kind of get over yourself. It's not that big of a deal. And that's because they fail to recognize how powerful stories are. Whereas the Disney Corporation recognizes fully how powerful stories are. That is precisely why they are committed uh, to showcasing LGBT ideology in their stories. And as I noted in my 2016 book, The Culture War, uh, groups like the Human Rights Campaign and GLAAD have been pushing Disney to include LGBT ideology in their films for years now because they recognize that this is the way to change culture. I want to kind of take you through a brief history of how this took place because I think that if people understood more effectively the impact that entertainment and storytelling has on us, we would practice more discernment than we actually do. And in fact, I would argue that TV and Hollywood, in addition to music, but I'm just going to look primarily at TV and Hollywood here, have had an enormous impact in changing the cultural views of Americans and others. And I'll start by giving you a, a very specific example. On May 6, 2012, then-Vice President, now President Joe Biden, uh, told NBC's Meet the Press why he decided to support same-sex marriage. And some of you might remember that on May 6, 2012, the Obama administration had not even come out publicly in favor of same-sex marriage yet, although Barack Obama obviously had privately supported it for years and for political reasons, for cultural reasons, felt like he couldn't be out of the closet on his support at that point. And so when Biden came out and supported the redefining of marriage, it was actually a really big deal and it was covered as if it was a really big deal. And so NBC was asking him why he felt comfortable coming out and announcing his support. And he said something very interesting. He said that in his view, the shift on this issue, this is again three years before the American Supreme Court redefined marriage uh, in the Obergefell decision in 2015, he said the shift began when, quote, when the social culture changes, I think Will and Grace did more to educate the American public than almost anything anybody has done so far. People fear that which is different, and now they're beginning to understand. And so Will and Grace, for those of you who don't know, was a wildly popular comedy sitcom. And here was the then vice president of the United States essentially saying this TV sitcom did more to change people's views on LGBT ideology than anything else did. And that's because TV shows, especially popular ones, form the basis for our culture in 2023. Why? It's because it's what most people tune into. More people watch TV and watch movies than read books. And so maybe a, a formal definition of culture may be helpful to understand what I'm trying to get across here. A formal definition of culture would be as follows. Culture can be defined as the, all the ways of life, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. Culture has been called the way of life for an entire society, and as such, it includes codes of manners, dress, language, religion, rituals, art, and norms of behavior such as law, morality, and systems of belief. Now, when the storytellers of a culture 
have all decided to adopt the values of the sexual revol uh, sexual revolution over scriptural revelation. This has a real impact on the social imaginary of our culture. The collection of stories and legends and myths myths that help us to understand who we are and why we are the way we are. And several def decades ago, our social imaginary would have been primarily shaped by Christianity. But since the sexual revolution, our social imaginary has been taken over by new stories, new storytellers, new soundtracks, new images. And these things, especially in a digital age of near constant screen time, have very much shaped and reshaped our values. You know, many Christians have had occasion over the past decade or two to kind of gape at the culture and ask, how did it get so bad so fast? And the reality, as I've said many times, is that our social imaginary has actually been changing for decades as the mainstream culture moves steadily away from Christianity. And now many Christians are an active part of this, because if we're still largely participating in mainstream entertainment— we are sharing our own social imaginary with a deeply anti-Christian culture. Over several decades, the entertainment industry has become the propaganda arm of the sexual revolution, as I mentioned earlier. TV shows were stories told by storytellers to an audience of previously unprecedented size, and those storytellers held, for the most part, anti-Christian views. Millions of Christians allowed these storytellers into their homes, despite that, granting an audience to Hollywood's scriptwriters and celebrities to speak directly to their children and to their families every night. And I often think of a quote by TV presenter David Frost, who once said, the television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people that you wouldn't have in your home. Now, the storytellers of the big and small screen were and are fundamentally competing for time to shape our values and our worldviews. Stories are at the center of culture, and the stories we tell ourselves shape how we see our own communities, how we see ourselves, how we see others, and of course, how we see the world around us. Stories, as we all know, are extraordinarily powerful, which means that the stories we choose to consume actually have the power to shape us. Stories draw us in, we identify with different characters in those stories, and the entire reason we want to consume stories is because they are powerful and appealing. And that is why resisting the storytellers of mainstream culture is often so difficult and why so many Christians are addicted to entertainment. The primary goal of these storytellers, of course, is commercial success, but as I referenced with Disney earlier on, that is not their only goal. They have many different ways of subliminally persuading viewers. Well, it's, it's not as subliminal these days. It's a lot more overt now. But initially, it was sort of the subliminal mainstreaming of sinful behavior. And one of the ways they did this was they would use humor. Let me uh, give you uh, some context for that. Hollywood and TV comedies and sitcoms contributed hugely to the mainstreaming of behavior that once, like a very short amount of time ago, our culture would have recognized as sinful. But the, sinful fa the simple fact is that when you make sin funny, as comedy sitcoms do, you make it very, very difficult to take seriously. So if a lovable playboy on a comedy sitcom on, say, Friends or How I Met Your Mother or Will and Grace or The Big Bang Theory or name any major popular sitcom gets into sort of various peccadillos while sleeping around, then suddenly fornication is no longer a sin that threatens your soul. Instead, it's funny. And it's very difficult 
to be schizophrenic enough to find fornication hilarious on a Saturday night around the TV or the laptop, but a deadly sin the next day on Sunday morning in church. And so the same thing has been true, just to give you another example, most of you listening to this podcast will know that one of my hobby horses is talking about how we should ban pornography because of how poisonous it is. Well, porn use has become a ubiquitous punchline in TV sitcom for decades. Uh, If porn addiction is funny, how can it also be a soul-poisoning participation in the systematic degradation of women that rewires people's brains and destroys their marriages? It can, of course. So ditto for the normalization of alternative lifestyles, conditioning audiences to accept the redefinition of marriage. If the entertainment industry can get you laughing at things that God hates, then they haven't, in fact, already won a huge victory. You might still call it sin. You might still believe it is. But because the storytellers of our culture can make you think it's funny, they know that they, you cannot take it as seriously. And they did this very much on purpose. The entertainment industry also exploits empathy because, again, I repeat, stories are incredibly powerful. As secular stories can, uh, storytellers, pardon me, can tell you powerful stories about transgenderism or LGBT lifestyles, they can make you feel not just sorry for the main characters, but actually support their lifestyle choices. I speak in high schools, and all of the time, young people have become supportive of various sinful sexual lifestyles. Why? Because they were introduced to characters on TV shows and movies or YouTube influencers or Instagram influencers. These stories convey the message that only a loving or compassionate approach to issues of sex and sexuality, the only way to be loving and compassionate is to affirm their behavior and to throw scripture out. And especially over the last 10 years, Christians who hold the biblical standards are increasingly presented in films and on TV shows as the villains of these stories. And so our instinctive human a human instinct for, for compassion, for suffering characters on screen, is actually exploited by secular storytellers to subvert Christian values and to pull us away from biblical truth. And we see this across the culture. It's been tremendously effective. To put it really simply, before I give you some more specifics, movies and TV shows teach morality. They just don't teach Christian morality. And the entertainment industry has been an intentional and essential tool in transforming Western cultural values over the past decades. The entertainment industry began to push for the LGBT agenda a long time ago, and comedian and actress Ellen DeGeneres, many of you may have heard of her, lent that campaign her face when she came out as a lesbian on the ABC sitcom Ellen back in April of 1997 on the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, Time magazine put her on the cover with the headline in block letters, yep, I'm gay, 42 million Americans tuned into her TV coming out, and in that moment a cultural figure was born, and... More importantly, an emerging cultural shift was crystallized. The NBC comedy sitcom Will and Grace, which launched the next year in 1998, was next. This show prominently featured LGBT storylines, and 75 million Americans, 75 million Americans, at that time this was a third of the country, tuned into at least part of each new episode on Thursday nights. One of the creators of Will and Grace actually stated that one of the purposes of the show was to be a powerful piece of propaganda for the LGBT movement due to the intimacy of the television medium giving them a real opportunity. I want to quote directly from what he said. 
A very distinct and specific part about the technique of writing TV is having an awareness that you are going to be inside a person's living room and it's going to be beamed to them when they're in a very intimate space. And because of that, we always wrote the show thinking about our parents. In short, these writers wrote to persuade middle America. And as Joe Biden said years later, it worked. Because what these shows did was they were an Overton window shift in our social imaginary. And one of the contributors to this was the advent of reality TV, which increased LGBT visibility with Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, followed by shows like Boy Meets Boy and Queer as Folk. And as Rachel Maddow, who's a lesbian news anchor, said, quote, reality TV became part of a coming out process for the country. Uh, there's a 2020 documentary called Visible out on television, and many show creators noted that while they were working on these shows, they would negotiate with studios and networks for the chance to feature LGBT content. Uh, in 2000, for example, Dawson's Creek, wildly popular among young people, featured the first gay kiss between teenage boys. And as one of the main actors on Queer as Folk put it, television has the power to normalize something that people don't understand. Now, what I find interesting, too, is that even Christians got very, very accustomed very, very quickly to seeing a lot of LGBT content on a lot of shows. They very, very quickly lost the capacity to be shocked uh, or uncomfortable um, by same-sex scenes. That was all part of the plan. That was all part of what Hollywood was trying to do, is if you can desensitize somebody to something, so that eventually it does not become shocking in any way, shape, or form. Slowly but surely, they're boiling the frog. They're making you feel that this is normal, even if you don't rationally think it's normal. If you say, for example, I still believe this is a sinful lifestyle, I still hold the scriptural values, but at the same time, you're consuming stories where you're instinctively empathizing with a guy who wants to date a guy, for example, what they're doing is they're undermining your moral foundation by circumventing your reason because you're focused on a screen you're absorbing a story and that story is affecting the way that you think without having to rationally convince you of a different position let me give you another quote uh, peter page of queers folk stated i firmly believe that television is a weapon to be wielded very thoughtfully and it was, and it was tremendously successful. By the mid-2000s, the LGBT movement virtually owned the industry, with characters from every letter of the ever-growing LGBT acronym widely represented. Not only gay, lesbian, and bisexual characters, but transgender and non-binary characters as well. Sitcoms like Modern Family, which featured gay men who adopt a little girl, ensuring, of course, that she remains motherless, mainstreamed the idea of the LGBT family. And, this is a really important inflection point, when a member of the most famous celebrity family in the world, Bruce Jenner, came out to the world as transgender in April 2015 in an interview with Diane Sawyer, the transgender movement went truly global. And again, I think that people recognize that this was a strange moment when somebody who was a you know a muscular male Olympian who won gold medals on behalf of the United States announced that he was in fact not a man uh, but a woman named Caitlin. A lot of people thought it was kind of weird, but it also had a tremendous, tremendous normalizing effect. Uh, as one analyst put it after Jenner's interview, now everyone knows a transgender person. And the follow-up reality show that Bruce did, called I Am Kate, was, as one LGBT activist noted, an enormously normalizing phenomenon because, quote, 
she put trans on the lips of everyone in the world. By she, of course, this activist means he, because she is referring to Bruce Jenner. You'll notice it all gets kind of confusing, it all gets muddled, but instead of actually considering what gender ideology means, what the LGBT movement means, the entire issue is, bo- is boiled down to the single story of a single man who is presenting his story with tremendous power on some of the most uh, influential broadcast networks in the world. Now, I want to shift to the way the transgender movement took over Hollywood for a minute, uh, because I think that Jenner's story was really the beginning of it. But for quite a while, even um, companies like Disney shied away from explicitly um, explicitly, pardon me, endorsing gender ideology, because it was apparent very quickly from data that a lot of Americans and Westerners in general just simply didn't care about the issue of gay couples. It was just something that they didn't want it in their face, but they didn't really care one way or another. But the idea that a man could become a woman or a woman could become a man, that was an entirely separate thing. But despite that, the trans activists made short work of gaining the influence that they wanted in the entertainment industry. So it took the gay rights movement decades to gain domination of the entertainment world. But the trans activists really were right on their heels, of course, with a lot of help from phenomenal cultural superstars like Bruce Jenner and Laverne Cox, pardon me, who was featured on the cover of Time magazine in 2014. Uh, she, um, Laverne Cox, sorry, see how easy it is to mix it up. Laverne Cox is a male who identifies as a woman and then starred on a, on a TV show called Orange is the New Black. And the Time magazine cover with Laverne Cox on it was really a tipping point in media for the recognition of transgender or trans-identified celebrities shifting the culture. And now nearly every major film and TV genre has transitioned and transgender characters are a key feature of the film industry. And this is a potent and powerful tool for accomplishing the twin goals of normalizing every aspect of the transgender lifestyle and, this is very important, demonizing anyone who disagrees with gender ideology. So let me give you just a couple of recent examples. So first, in the category of romantic comedy, in 2022, the director Billy Porter, who is a gay man renowned for cross-dressing in public, released a coming-of-age romantic comedy called Anything's Possible. It's sort of a standard cheesy rom-com with an angsty pop soundtrack, except for the fact that Kelsa, whose name means brave, not incidentally, was born male and now identifies as a, quote, trans girl, which, again, is a male who identifies as a girl. Kelsa looks like a girl, and Cal, her classmate, falls hopelessly in love. He watches Kelsa's YouTube videos about going on puberty blockers and transgender experiences and decides, like the open-minded protagonist that he is, that none of this matters. Gender itself doesn't matter. They are just two teens falling in love, and anything's possible. Now, obviously, it's more complicated than that. References are made to the fact that Kelsa's body isn't female, but that is dismissed out of hand as irrelevant to the story. And the film is really a a powerful, normalizing piece of LGBT propaganda, in large part because Kelsa is played by Ava Rain, a biological male who, quote, transitioned at a young age and can very much pass as female. So just as teen transgenderism is normalized in this film, 
opponents of transgender ideology are very demonized. And so there's a scene where Kelsa is briefly barred from the girls' bathroom, and this is portrayed as a bigoted attempt to tar a transgender person by exploiting unreasonable fears. So those who refuse to use Kelsa's, quote, preferred pronouns, as in they refer to Kelsa as a boy as opposed to a girl, like she claims, are portrayed as vile, illiterate people who merely wish to cause unnecessary pain, despite the fact that Kelsa is, in fact, a male. And a mother who objects to Kelsa using the girls' bathroom is presented as a loudmouth bigot and is told by the principal, you are a danger to your daughter with that attitude. And the scene ends with this mother's daughter saying, I don't think like you and storming out. Happy ending, right? So both Porter and Rain see this film, which was released on Amazon Prime, as part of a, quote, revolution. And Rain, who plays Kelsa, actually told Entertainment Weekly that, quote, artists oftentimes make art either in response to the culture or in opposition to it, and both hope that anything's possible will affirm the premise of the title and spawn an entire subgenre of transgender stories. And there is a whole bunch of these films that have been coming out kind of nonstop. And I took a look specifically uh, at Anything's Possible because it was an extremely popular film that was part of an extremely popular genre and because the filmmakers explicitly stated that they were attempting to launch a revolution. But there was a drama put out in 2018 called A Kid Like Jake. This was directed by Silas Howard, a trans-identifying director who openly states that he's seeking to normalize LGBT. LGBT ideology through art, and the film features an all-star cast, including prominent gay actor Jim Parsons, who played uh, Sheldon Cooper in The Big Bang Theory as the lead, and it tells the story of parents struggling to understand their gender non-conforming four-year-old son, who insists on wearing princess dresses and constantly tucks his genitals between his legs, and the whole film is basically an exercise in telling parents that if their little boys are somehow gender non-conforming, maybe put on girls' clothes like Barbies, like dolls, that this should be understood as their child being of the opposite sex. And so just as all this evidence is coming out about the horrors of what uh, cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers do to kids, uh, you've got this film coming out in a very powerful storytelling medium with very talented actors and actresses making the case uh, that if you have a kid like Jake, as the title has, that you should treat them precisely the way the characters in the film treat him, which is let him wear dresses and eventually call him a girl. And of course, it ignores the fact that a kid like Jake usually ends up put on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and then finally under the knife for castration and other surgeries. So Jake's future is left up in the air. The film ends before that happens, but his trajectory is likely tragic. There's other ones too. The Babysitter's Club, for example, is an iconic series of paperback books about teen girls and their babysitting adventures. You've probably seen them. They sold 106 million copies between 1986 and 2000. And in 2020, Netflix adapted it into a series and turned it into trans propaganda almost immediately. They have uh, trans-identified uh, kids right away. The babysitters are always defending the rights of these trans-identified kids. And the propaganda lines are so obvious that they're almost clunky. This is very, very, very deliberate. It's a deliberate attempt to ensure that the teen kids, who are presumably the targeted audience for the show see the transgender characters and recognize how they're supposed to behave in response to transgenderism around them and in their own lives. 
And just to conclude, it's not just entertainment aimed at adults and teens either. I know I've addressed this on the podcast before, and I've written about it a lot in my column. Most children's entertainment now, too, is also turning towards the LGBT movement. And so I began this podcast by mentioning the example of Disney. Disney committing to making 50% of its characters being a sexual minority. But there's a very long list lately of different shows that are going along the same lines. So Blue's Clues, an animated show for preschoolers that first launched in 1996, released a Blue's Clues Pride Parade sing-along in 2021. You can see this on YouTube. This is where I've seen most of this stuff. And it featured a cartoon drag queen, a gay dolphin, a transgender beaver with chest scars from a double mastectomy, I kid you not, and a panoply of queer and non-binary characters. So I just want to point to one of these. This is all pretty disturbing. A cartoon drag queen, a transgender beaver. But the transgender beaver literally has chest scars, which essentially means that this is uh, a cartoon representation of a teen girl who had her healthy breasts surgically removed because she believes she's a boy. And this is aimed at little kids. This is aimed at little kids. Same thing is true for the famous cartoon series Arthur, which was based on a series of children's books. Uh, Mr. Ratburn, the teacher, was shown marrying a man in a 2019 episode. The Clifford the Big Red Dog franchise was rebooted recently with lesbian moms. The popular children's show Peppa Pig aired an episode with lesbian polar bears. Uh, Netflix's She-Ra and the Princesses of Power featured multiple transgender characters. Amazon's Prime's Danger and Egg started a, quote, trans girl and non-binary characters. PBS's Sesame Street has now featured drag queen story time, starring Billy Porter, the guy I mentioned earlier who made the film Anything's Possible. And, of course, back to Disney, they're committed to ensuring that this content infuses all of the films that they put out for kids. And I want to emphasize this point because over the coming years, there will be no mainstream children's franchise that does not feature LGBT content. The capture of our storytelling institutions by the LGBT movement has been total. And I think Christians and parents in particular have to exercise an enormous amount of caution and a great deal of discernment. And for years, I've heard people say it's just entertainment. And I've seen people get very angry when a new Disney film, for example, is critiqued. And they'll say, come on, you guys are legalistic. You're over the top. Uh, you're taking this way too seriously. It's just a story. That, quite frankly, is an incredibly ludicrous thing to say. There is no such thing as just a story. Stories are very powerful. And one of the reasons, as I said at the very beginning, we know that these things are very powerful is because people react so strongly when you criticize stories that they want to watch. Because if entertainment wasn't a big deal, people wouldn't be so angry when you suggest that perhaps they don't watch a certain show or they don't watch a film. But as Plato said thousands of years ago, those who tell the stories rule society. I read another quote recently from Paul Kingsnorth, who's a brilliant writer. He runs a substack called The Abbey of Misrule. And he was writing about a different subject, but he was writing about the power of stories, and I thought it applied perfectly to the point that I'm trying to make in this podcast. And he said this, Human history could be seen as a never-ending series of battles over stories, with the winners determining who shapes society, at least for a while. New stories can replace old ones and topple cultures in the process. This is precisely what we see going on right now from entertainment targeted first at adults, then at teens, and now at children, 
we've seen the old stories that were rooted in the Judeo-Christian worldview replaced by new stories based on the values of the sexual revolution. And this goes all the way from Blue's Clues up to films about major gay rights icons like Harvey Milk starring Sean Penn and everything in between. I've talked to parents who were shocked when they realized that a show they stuck their kids in front of while they were cleaning house, a show like Peppa Pig or any number of these other shows, were sneaking in these gay characters. A lot of parents put their kids in front of entertainment so that they can get other stuff done, not realizing that they are leaving their children alone with storytellers who have a very specific agenda. And so I hope that in just this half an hour, I've kind of encapsulated why I think we need to be so careful about the storytellers we allow to spend time with our children. Because again, when we sit down and we watch a story, we listen to a story, we read a story, we are actually being presented with a worldview told to us in the form of a story by somebody who holds a specific set of values. And especially in the case of Hollywood and TV, they are trying to sell us a very specific set of values. And those values are the very values that are destroying our culture and have destroyed much of Western civilization since the sexual revolution began 60 to 70 years ago. I hope some of you found that helpful. If you want to listen to other podcasts, most of my podcasts are interviews, but I really wanted to address this topic today. You can head over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab, and you can find our past shows or subscribe to future ones. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. We hope you have a good week.